Welcome to That's What She Said About the Bible, a podcast by Wycliffe College. That's What She Said is a podcast devoted to telling the stories of historical women who taught others about the Bible from the pulpit and from the page. What did they write? What did they say? And why have we never heard of many of them? Join your hosts, Dr. Marion Taylor and Kira Molman, as they dig up the words of these forgotten women and explore their lives, their influences, and their relevance for today. For more information and episodes, visit our website at www.wickliffcollege.ca slash podcast. Today we're going to talk about Mary Cornwallis and her daughter Caroline, who are people that Marion found through her research. Marion, could you tell us about the discovery of Mary Cornwallis? Yes, it's quite an exciting story. Um, Heather Weir, who's now a colleague, she was my assistant at the time and trained as an engineer and very technical in her skills. And we were trying to find women interpreters not knowing their names or the names of their books. We typed in Mrs. as author and Bible as subject. We came up with many hits. And I redid that uh, experiment last week on this new search engine that's called Library Hub Discover. So if you Google Library Hub Discover, it allows you to search the merged online catalogs of the British Library, the National Library of Scotland, the National Library of Wales, and all the major universities and specialist libraries in Britain. So there are millions of books. So I typed in Mrs. as author and Bible as subject, and I got 591 hits. So that means there are many more books written by Mrs., somebody, on the Bible than the first time we did this, and they are undiscovered. And that's just in the English language, right? That's right. So there's so much there's so much more work to be done uncovering other languages, but even just within English language. In the last 20 years, the numbers of books that are available without buying them is huge. Like now Cornwallis, Mary Cornwallis's four volumes are on Google Books, so you can search them. So Heather had the good idea of going to the British Library website, typing in Mrs. as author and Bible as subject, and Mrs. Cornwallis pops up. And Mrs. Cornwallis is the author of a four-volume commentary on the entire Bible that she published in 1817 and that was republished in 1820. So that was one of these aha moments for me because I'm a biblical scholar and I had no idea that a woman as early as Cornwallis had published four volumes, 2,000 pages commentary on the Bible. So I was very excited. So she's one of those early women that captured my attention right away. The challenge for me in living in Toronto was how do I get a hold of Cornwallis's work? It was not on Google Books at the time. I was going to a conference in Dallas, and I found out that at Southern Methodist University, they had a copy in their rare book bookstore. And so I went. I spent a day there, and they brought the commentaries out to a table. I had to read them carefully. They would not let me photocopy them or take a picture of them. So I madly took notes. 
I continued my search for her books, though, and I found out that they were in Cambridge. And we had uh, some grant money, and uh, a student was over in Cambridge and photocopied Cornwallis. And in the meantime, I was looking online at used books sites like ABE Books. And one day I found a, a volume three of the set. And then months later, even years later, I found one day I was just looking to see if by chance Cornwallis was there. And I found a the four volume set of her entire commentary. And it's in beautiful condition, marbled covers. And um, so I love, I love her commentary and I love her book and I love her story. She's one of those women uh, it was kind of a, a, you know, she's an, well, she's a privileged English woman who marries an Anglican priest, and they have they are ministering in the same church for over fifty years, in in Wittersham, Kent. So she's a minister's wife, and a minister's wife had a lot of power and responsibility to sort of do Bible studies, care for the women, care for her husband, care for her family. And, and so she was um, oh, a woman of, she married into it, the Cornwallis family that has a long history. Uh, a number of the ancestors are priests. One was the governor of Maryland. Um, and I think they have money because in their life, it, it, she can always order any book she wants and they have a very impressive library. So that's merit. That's the story of how we found Mary Cornwallis. And, and tonight um, we are going to talk about her and just a little bit of her background and then talk about this opus of four volumes that she wrote. One of your students highlighted something that you hadn't seen before. Could you tell us a bit about how this student connected with Cornwallis and what she found in her writing? Yes, it was actually a person who was auditing my class, uh, Carmen Mason, whose husband uh, was the principal at Wycliffe and then became a bishop in the Anglican Church. And she was auditing one of my first classes on women interpreters of the Bible. She was very interested in Cornwallis because, like Cornwallis, she was married to an Anglican priest. So she went through her work, it's four volumes, so I didn't have time to read it all, but she perused it and read a number of sections very carefully. And she was very astute and figured out that Cornwallis um, was reading many other books and doing summary notes. So a lot of her commentary is drawn from the scholarship of other male commentators and biblical scholars. And then often her voice changes in her writing when she, when you hear her own voice, the voice of a mother, the voice of the wife of a minister, and, and she preaches in, with her pen. So she, this is Carmen Mason, was able to uh, isolate different voices in her commentary. So it, that was a, a really interesting discovery for me, and it attuned me to the fact that I, what I'm looking for is her voice. So I'm particularly interested in the parts of the commentary where her experiences as a woman, as a wife, as a mother, shape how she's interpreting the scriptures. So what are some of those experiences? Well, she's um, 
first of all, she's a mother, right? So she has two children, and um, we know a, a lot about one of them. The first, the older daughter died. Um, she was married. Um, her name, um, what was her name? Sarah? Oh, yeah, that, Sarah, that's right. She, so Sarah um, was her older daughter and married James Trimmer, who was the son of another woman who actually wrote commentaries and many books, Sarah Trimmer. So her, she left home, was married, and a year later had a child, and uh, she died a month after giving birth to this child. The child was raised by an aunt, the, uh, the, the sister of James Trimmer, but one of the last words that her daughter said to her was, take care of my son. So during, uh, that, that was the one daughter, and then she had her other daughter, Caroline, who's I think five or six years younger, um, and we know a lot about her because she wrote letters, and we have, a, a volume of published letters and p poems and translations and all kinds of goodies. It's almost uh, 500 pages long, and you can get that on Google Books. So we know a lot about her, and we know a lot about her interior life, and um, and that's kind of a treasure as you uh, the letters go over a long period of her life, and you can see her growth and development as a woman and a thinker and a scholar herself. So as a mother of these two young girls, she was very, she did homeschooling as parents did then because girls sometimes were given private tutoring, but often not even given that at this period. But so she was the person who educated her daughters and she was very concerned to educate them in the Bible. In her own personal devotional life, she wrote uh, she read commentaries and wrote notes. But as the mother of two young girls, she was she began to use these notes as a way to teach her daughters, and they were very interested. So she thought, oh, these notes could be used for teaching others. So that when her daughter died and gave her responsibility for training up the grandchild, she thought, I need to rework these notes for James, my grandson, to teach him. And so the voice of the mother is in the commentary, but also the voice of the grandmother um, as she's warning James about certain kinds of women you should or should not marry, for example. So this that's the backstory of this four volume. She didn't intend to publish it, but it was actually her daughter, uh, Caroline, who it was her idea saying, Mom, I think you should publish this and I'll help you. And you could, with the funds that you, with the money you make from the book, we could endow a school for children in the parish, which she did. And that school is still in existence. So the money, they, the, the, they, they sold the book by subscription. So you get wealthy people to give you money for the book. And, um, and so they published this amazing book. So that's the backstory of the commentary. And then, um, and I think it'd be, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the different voices of Cornwallis. I mean, that sounds kind of weird, but there are distinct voices as she reads um, the Bible through uh, her her different lenses. And I and I think. Um, 
certainly I think that's a valid thing to do. And I think we see this in the writings of many women that we've recovered in that your experience as a woman shapes sometimes the, the, your in, special interest in certain passages, in certain characters, and in texts that would apply to your life and the life of your family. And I think that's very true in the case of Cornwallis. So one of the texts she comments on in her commentary on Proverbs 31, and this is one of the texts I first went to, because Proverbs 31 talks about women. And it begins by talking, by saying that this is written by King Lemuel, and we don't know who that is. But some people imagine, because of what the verses talk about initially, they talk about uh, uh, the words of a mother warning her son not to drink too much and to be wary of women who would lead him astray. So that sounds like maybe it would be the words of Solomon's mother, who was led astray by many women. And so Cornwallis reads it that way, and she she says um, that this passage is written perhaps by Bathsheba. So she identifies what she calls the tender sympathies of Bathsheba, including her motherly approach to say, you know, don't drink too much, my son, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, then she reads um, verses 10 to 31, which is that encomium to this uh, wonderful woman, a virtuous woman, a strong woman, a strong wife. And she says, she thinks this is... Um, a eulogy to what she says, that unfortunate and much injured Bathsheba, who herself refined in the furnace of affliction, had shown anxiety to preserve her son from the snares which had, had entangled his father in sin. Wow. So Bathsheba knew David had sinned, and I don't want my son to be like that. And so then they write this, you know, then it's a beautiful poem to this wonderful woman. So she, she, that's a very interesting reading of Proverbs 31. Um, and, but she goes further, and she, like many women who read the text, realized that the woman who is praised so highly in Proverbs 31 is a city woman, an ancient city woman, and she does things like go out and buy property, she goes to the market, she embroiders, she does all kinds of things. And many of the things that she does women in England are not allowed to do. So she realized the disconnect in time between the ancient texts and her texts. And she comments about that and she says this, differences of customs in different nations and climates will necessarily pr produce diversity in the proper occupations of women as well as their duties. So she says, we're going to be different, but the, she goes to character likenesses, and she says, fidelity, economy, active industry, prudent foresight, improving and intelligent conversation, careful education of children, and a constant concern for the temporal and eternal int interests of all with whom she's connected will render a, a woman dear to her husband. So those are values that are her values. They're not necessarily all in Proverbs 31, but she's trying to say, 
there's still something we can learn from Proverbs uh, 31 as 19th century women. So that's an example of how she reads through the lens of a woman. Um, another example would be uh, when she deals with New Testament texts. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, um, 9 to 11 talks about many sins and a lot of sexual sins. And then she says um, her motherly voice, I mean, I'm a mother and, and I can identify her motherly voice. And she says her motherly, the, her motherly voice rings out when she says she warns um, daughters about marrying a guy she calls a libertine who restless and uneasy in himself is incapable of tasting the tranquil pleasures of domestic life. So she, with all these lists of sins, she says, don't marry a guy like that because he won't settle down to home life. And then she, uh, and then she goes on to say this. Um, she says, she embraces a maxim that, uh, she says, this is not true, right? That she says, woe be to the thoughtless and unprincipled woman who embraces the fatal maxim that a reformed rake makes the best husband. So she's against bad boys. She's against marrying bad boys. Yeah, <laughs> she said, and I think um, you've been taking a course on, on the history of marriage. And on the history part, of sexuality. Uh, and, and in part, you've been looking at the history of marriage, right? Yeah. So marriage in the 19th century and marriage today are quite different. And when women... What, well, can you tell us a little bit, what happened to 19th, a 19th century woman when she got married? One of the, I was surprised by this, that in the 19th century, women actually ended up having less rights as married women than they had in the medieval period. So in the medieval period, a woman could own property, but in the 19th century, when a woman got married, anything that had been hers was now her husband's. And that included herself. So there are stories of women running away from their husbands, and then they track them down, and legally the court has to hand this woman over to her husband again. So I think it, it was interesting for me to see that this can go back and forth, that in medieval period, they had more freedom than they did in the 19th century and that there's kind of this shift, not just in one direction, but back and forth. Right. So we see in Mary Cornwallis, she's addressing part of her concern then is for women and the kind of person they marry because you, that person, as she talks about, becomes your master, right? You are owned, you're a possession, you're chattel. Later on in the 19th century, this will be challenged, and her daughter actually takes this on as a cause later. But certainly when Cornwallis is writing in you know, 1817, she publishes the book. She, she really, um, you know, she's concerned that a woman um, has, when you're married, you, you want to know the character of the person you marry, which, which of course you do, but it's, it, Everything is at stake for a woman, right? So she's not questioning the status quo. She is not. No. But she is trying to make sure that women won't be harmed. That's right. And the status quo 
mean, as, as women are subordinate to men. There are verses in the Bible that, that would reinforce that view. And so she, she talks about some of those verses. Um, and uh, just hints that if you're going to have to be obedient, um, make sure that this is a, a good choice. So she writes this. All that then remains is that having exerted prudence in the choice of a husband, she should secure his confidence by upright conduct, by his, effect, his affection by kind compliance, that he, finding her always actuated by right motives, may listen to her counsels in matters of importance. So she talks and further about um, how can you be submissive and empowered at the same time? And to a modern ear, it sounds like, how can you manipulate the situation so you, so subordination is, is, works for you? So she, she says, like, you are such, uh, you know, you, so affectionate and, uh, like, he's so confident and trusting in you that he listens to your counsel. So that is very interesting. And it, and it, um, and it doesn't have to be, an, I think when we hear the word manipulate, mm -hmm. we can attach negative connotations right. to that. But it sounds also like this is part of having good conduct and being a respectable wife includes giving good advice and setting yourself up in the way that allows you to be heard when you're giving that advice. Right. No, and, and I think women throughout history, when we've recovered you know, centuries of women's interpretations. They're very interested in the role of women in marriage. And they often cite the book of Esther as an example, because Esther seems to play the game, right? She manipulate, I, I use the word manipulate because I think she really does that. Like she, she knows that Xerxes and Haman like to drink and eat. She invites them to dinner once and then again, and she has them eating out of the palm of her hand. So when women read that, they think, I could do that too. And we have examples of the Medici women, like women married to very uh, prominent Italian leaders who said, be like Esther, influence your husband. And so women, there are ways women can have power, even though they, on, on paper, they don't have power. And that's kind of what she's talking about. Be the kind of wife who is so respected and trusted by her husband that him being master doesn't count, is not an oppressive thing, and that you work together as a team, which is what they did in ministry. She was the, the minister's wife and worked to support him and work with him in all the church ministry. So I, it, it is interesting to me that you do hear this voice of Trimmer as a woman, as a wife, as a mother. Cornwallis, uh, uh, not Trimmer. Uh, not Tr Cornwallis. Um, Trimmer did too, but this is, yeah, we do hear the voice of Mary Cornwallis as a mother and as a wife, and her, and we recognize that it, this is 200, more than 200 years ago, and life for women then and life for women now are very different. One of the things that struck me was her reading of the woman who 
is out to seduce men in Proverbs. And we talked about how her ministry um, as a pastor's wife would have opened her up to a different reading than how people normally read that woman. That's right. Often when you read old commentaries on the woman who in Proverbs, the King James Version is called the strange woman, or, you know, she's an adulteress, or the, there's Lady Wisdom and then Dame Folly, right? So this woman who stands at the corner and says to young men, come to my bed, it's perfumed and aloe, my husband's away. And uh, and some of the early male commentators would say, oh, the poor men, they have no ch- these poor young men, right? It's like, you know, led to the slaughter and they, and they had no choice in the matter. But Cornwallis is not like this at all. And I think... Her comments on this uh, text in Proverbs make me think that she's thinking of her grandson, who's 12, right? And she says, um, she does not blame the woman who tries to to seduce young men, which all the male commentators blame the woman. She blames the men for seducing and corrupting the unhappy woman in the first place. And you think, she must know women who have been, who are prostitutes or who have been seduced and then don't, their life is over. So she's saying maybe this woman in Proverbs is a similar woman who, who has, you know, has um, been abused herself and, and then is, this is her way of making money. Anyway, it's very interesting for her um, to take that. And then you hear her voice as a preacher, right? She's a preacher's wife. She doesn't preach, but she does preach with her pen, I think. She says, what madness, therefore, is it in them to enter into a conspiracy against their own happiness by sowing the seeds of vanity in the female mind, by unsettling its religious principles, by breaking down the fence of natural modesty and by encouraging um, them to have taste for idle and expensive pleasures and undermining their Christian graces, which render women useful members of society and a blessing in the domestic circle. So she's saying men should consider what they're doing and men should not try and seduce women and you know, get them into things that will lead them astray. So she blames the men for leading women astray, which is interesting. I I think that's, um, I don't think you would find that in a commentary written by a man. So I think that's, that's a unique little window into her life. And in a society where once a woman was married, she belonged to her husband. There, there are these stories of men going after women of great fortune so that they can take on the property. And that's another way of leading a woman astray, I think. And her daughter ends up advocating for changes in those laws. That's true, yeah. So as we, in some ways, it's not surprising that her daughter... Um, absorbs her mother's values, right? Well, she's taught, but she, and, 
But as she then goes on to live her life, she will go further with them. And But you see kind of, you know, nascent ideas that, that then, are, then grow, right? This, so the seeds of what the daughter will do with her life are there in her mother's life, which I think is really interesting. And all of that comes from her reading of Scripture. It does. It's her mother's yeah. interpretation of Scripture yeah. that then incites both her mother and her daughter to yeah. do something. That's right. And, and then the other, the last voice that I, um, that Carmen actually identified in Cornwallis is Cornwallis as a mother of the church, as a mother of the parish. And when she reads the pastoral epistles in the New Testament that give instructions about bishops how, uh, and wives and how, you know, who, um, how they should dress and how they should behave, she's very curious um, because she wonders why the writer does not talk about the characteristics of a bishop wife because he notes in verse, this is First um, Timothy 3, verse 11, he says, um, the deacon's wives, and this is King James, are to be grave, not slanderers, sober and faithful in all things. And she wonders, why does he say grave? And of course, that means serious, right? right? And she says, um, I don't think, she says this, this um, directive about wives, clergy wives being um, grave doesn't mean they're to be glooming or morose, but rather free from all levity in dress and manner. For without a certain dignity of character, all attempts to reform others would be fruitless and ridiculous. So I thought that was kind of fun. I mean, she obviously thinks that um, the minister's wife needs to be a proper lady and dress in a certain way. But that doesn't mean she can't have fun, that she has to go around as a grave, with a, you know, whatever a grave face would mean, right? Um, so I thought that was a very interesting comment. And she says, something is missing in the Bible. Why, why do they talk about certain wives and not others? And then, um, and she, yeah, so she, she does have these opinions about the role of a clergy spouse. And um, she thinks they need to be educated. So she says, as the mother of the parish, like she takes on that role of the mother of all the church, she admonishes men and argues for women's education. She said, if you want to have good women, you need to educate them. And this is an argument women have been using for a long time. There's an early woman um, who says, who argues um, for education and says, on the basis of some of the teachings or interpretations of teachings in uh, the Bible, that because if women are so weak and feeble, then you men should educate them. Of all people, women need education. And her arguments are not that different. If you want uh, women to be uh, companions and counselors and faithful friends and prudent managers and capable mothers, then educate them, right? And and so she she she's involved in uh, promoting education, like uh, endowing a school, because she says edu educating the poor, educating children, educating women will change society for the better. So I like that. I think. Um, you know, she she believes that women deserve education, and um, and she wants to promote it, and thinks Christian the church should be behind that. Yeah. And the other thing that you see 
in her commentary is her work as a theologian and somebody defends the faith. And I think it's all over there. It's all over the place. Her, she's very learned. Uh, she has, you know, solid theology, and she reads the text carefully. Um, did she know biblical languages? She did. She knew Hebrew. She likely knew Greek. She certainly knew Latin. And these women, they studied all the time. I can't imagine, like, two th writing out, like, publishing a book of 2,000 pages, that's a serious endeavor. Right, because Take you don't years. have a computer. No computer. It's written by hand. Um, and, and then how do you do editing and correcting? So, um, yeah, I respect this woman. I, I think she's a, a woman um, who wrote a book when it was not really encouraged that women wrote biblical commentaries. There was suspicion that um, men were suspect of a woman who wrote a commentary because they didn't have a theological education. So they thought, why would a woman think she had enough knowledge to do this? But I think it was her daughter that really pushed her to do this. Um, I think in one of uh, Caroline's letters, she talks about p the idea of pushing her mother to do this. She says, the idea, I think the idea for the book was mine. And, and then she said she had this other secret idea about endowing the school um, with the money, and then Caroline, would, who was going to inherit a lot of money herself, gave her inheritance to the same school. So it's very interesting. When, when you say a theological education, what would that have looked like? Because so she knows the biblical languages, but she wouldn't have studied theology formally in terms of reading church fathers or going to school as opposed to being homeschooled. Her education would have been, even in languages, that would be self-taught or ha with a private tutor. And for theological education, I mean, often Anglican men went to schools like Oxford where they would have years of training in various theological s subjects and read the great books written by the great male theologians. So they would read, you know, Augustine and Calvin and Luther and other... Um, you know, great Anglican divines. So all her theological training would be vicarious, right? She would, she would certainly listen to many sermons, but she'd also read those theological books. But she was reading them by herself at home yeah. as opposed to in Going class. Going to school. Yeah. Or, yeah. But I think what I've learned from her daughter, whose letters we have, many women are reading theological books at this time. And they write to one another, discussing them. It's a, it's a very, like, we don't write letters in the same way. Her letters are long, and they ha include long quotations from the books she's reading, asking, you know, what do you think about this? And you finish reading a book, and then you send your best friend that, that book to read, and then you would discuss it. And it's all in the letter format. It's, it's, a very, it's a very different kind of education, but it is an education, a very sophisticated education. And I think when we, when we look back on it, we forget that it's not solitary, right? No. Because of no. these things like letters and the, the literary passing back and forth through these letters. And the conversations around the dinner table. I would think that um, 
the minister and his wife entertained many people, and they would entertain other priests and bishops and theological students, and the women and men around the table are involved in these discussions in the home. So they're, they're very literate, and they teach others. So Cornwallis is teaching her children, and then they're teaching other children, and this is the era of the Sunday school movement, the beginning of teaching kids to read using the Bible. Um, this is the time when they used, they had what's called an ABCdery. I didn't know that word till I started doing this research. And it's using the Bible verses to teach the ABCs. So A has the Bible verse beginning with A. And I've, we discovered this when we were working on the story of Hagar because everybody knew Hagar's story and it's the letter T, thou Lord seest me. So every, the Bible is a much more important book in culture. People allude to it all the time, whether they're Christian or not, people assume a biblical literacy. And you have that with Cornwallis and her family. Do you think she was able to publish that? It was a four volume yep. commentary on the whole Bible. Do you think that was open to her because it came out of a desire for catechizing children originally? Was it, was it marketed no, hers, that way? Hers is not for children. Her, uh, her book was uh, for adults. And uh, they, as, uh, as they talked about it, bringing together in one place the opinions of many people, including her own, would be a valuable resource for people to use. And they sold it by subscription. That means they probably sold it to their friends in the church, their relatives, right? And so it was not a book that lots of people would have bought in different places. It would, you know, it was a particular audience that bought that particular book. There were, there are a few other um, things that I read uh, today in her commentary that I wanted to talk about, and it was her um, commentary on the Psalms. And I picked, I was looking particularly for um, Psalms that might indicate, might give us her own voice, or at least give us a window into how she's interpreting scripture. And I picked Psalm 23, our most beloved Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And when I read the first, her introductory words, I thought, this woman knows how to enter into, uh, the, into, into the text. Um, so the Psalm, Psalm 23 begins, the Lord is my shepherd. And she says this, in the words which open this Psalm, which cannot be uttered without feeling that happy, without feeling the happiness they were intended to describe. The believer is taught to express his absolute acquiescence and complacency in the guardian care of the great pastor of the universe, the redeemer, the preserver of men. So I thought, wow, she just says, like she's reflecting on what does it mean to have the Lord as our shepherd? And she then says, with joy, the person reading this says, I have a shepherd, and that shepherd is the Lord. And it's like, um, you know, how can you not love that? So she then asks her reader, where can we ever find such unexampled diligence, some such inexpressible tenderness, 
such exquisite skill and unwearied patience? And why should not why should we all not want to have such a friend like a shepherd? So I thought, um, you know, she, she knows uh, she has a relationship with God that's very intimate. And when she reads, the Lord is my shepherd, it just all comes out. And then at the end of the psalm, when it, you know, it says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, she says, you know, David likely wrote this psalm, but David screwed up his life. She didn't use that word, but she, <laughs> like David, David messed up. He had an affair with Bathsheba. And, and she says, little did David understand when he penned this beautiful psalm that he, that he should lay up for himself such pangs of conscience or so greatly depart from his duty. So she said, like, David messed up. We can all mess up. So she says we need to stand. Uh, we need a watchful, constant friend to defend us against the art of the adversary and our own wayward and dangerous thoughts. And I thought, she's right. So she takes the beautiful psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, and all the good things that the shepherd does for us. And then she pauses and says, we have to be careful not to mess this up. It's a really pastoral reading. It's very pastoral. So that's where you think it's not simply academic for her. A lot of it sounds academic, but this is an example of where this is not academic. And then I turn to Psalm 131, which is a very short, the shortest little psalm. And it has, the imagery in that psalm is uh, very, uh, um, well, it, it's different than any other psalm. It's very tender. It's very tender. I mean, some people think maybe a woman composed it. I don't know. It says, Lord, my heart is not haughty. Mine eyes are not lofty. Um, and then in verse 2, it says, and this is the King James, Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother, my soul even as a weaned child. So you've got that image of a mother and child. And uh, she comments on this, and she wonders, um, and I, I think it's very beautiful, and she says it's probably a Psalm of David. And then she reads it in light of Jesus. She says it is eminently, you can apply it to the Messiah in the state of humiliate his humiliation on, on earth, like as Jesus took on a human form, uh, he's, he's very humble, as the attitudes are in this. And then he said, um, sorry, and then Cornwallis goes on to write uh, that it would be really great for the world if all Jesus' disciples could imbibe the spirit of this lovely psalm and copy the example that's set before us. And she says, like, if we all were humble like that and dependent on God as a baby is on his a mother, right? And then, she, and then she does an intertext. She goes to the New Testament, and the passage she chooses to comment on is uh, when the disciples are bringing, um, are annoyed that Jesus is with children, and Jesus picks up a child and says, you know, become as a, except you become as a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And so she, that's an amazing transition. And as she takes the Old Testament psalm, talks about its images, and then goes to the New Testament and talks about Jesus and his attitude toward children. So that, 
we call that kind of an intertextual reading, and it tells us about her attitude toward and her her method of interpreting scripture. Because she was someone who could see scripture as one story. She's not um, cutting off the Old Testament from the New Testament. Right. She's able to see Christ in the Old Testament as well. Right. No, and and I think it's very practical again, right? And she's saying these psalms teach us about how to live the christian mm-hmm. life right and i and the last one i wanted to talk about was her uh, was psalm 137 which is arguably one of the most difficult psalms because it ends with uh, vengeance i'm going to smash the baby's heads against the rock and that verse is usually left out of any church reading and I thought, I wonder what she does with this psalm. And she's, she, the psalm begins, of course, in a, in a much uh, different light. Um, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down weeping. We hung up our harps on the willow trees. And uh, she wonders who writes the psalm. And she says, who would have been in Babylon? And she said, Daniel and Ezekiel. And she said, probably Daniel. And I thought, wow, I'd never thought of I've never read anybody suggesting Daniel wrote this, but I thought that was um, interesting. And uh, but she she again reads the text empathetically, and she says she picks up on the pathos. She says, "What an inexpressible pathos is there in these few words by the waters?" And she said, "How did they?" At once, trans- these words take us to Babylon and place before our eyes the mournful situation of these Israelite captives. And she enters into their situation and imagines how they're feeling and how horrible this is. And then she understands the feelings of vengeance. And she's, she says that they know that God, through the prophetic writings, has already said he's going to punish Babylon. And then she concludes by saying... Uh, the destruction was to be universal, sparing neither sex nor age. And then her last line is, terrible, but just are your judgments, O Lord. So she has this idea of God as a God of justice. Uh, and, you know, she has a, re- a respect for God. So I, I think she's a woman whose writings, I mean, they are 200 years old, uh, but I think they're worth reading, and especially when you find the parts that just speak her voice, I think they give us a window into her life, and um, and I think that's a window that's needs to be opened. I think what's so striking is when you read through those interpretations of the Psalms, like they they are so fitting and pastoral and convicting and yeah but they're still timeless so she's writing 200 years ago and it still feels like oh i needed to hear that today so thank you so much marion thanks for listening to that's what she said about the bible a podcast by wycliffe college for more information and episodes visit our website at www.wycliffecollege.ca slash podcast